Good morning. We are now going to look at the book of Malachi, the overview of the book of Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, Ian and I are quite happy that uh, uh, we have now come to the end of this uh, overview and it was uh, God's help uh, through which we completed this uh, 39 books. So let us start with this book of uh, Malachi. The name of the writer and the title of the book is Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. Actually, we know nothing of Malachi apart from this book which bears his name. And the name of Malachi occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament. All we know is that Malachi received and communicated the word of Yahweh to the Jews of his day. Although Malachi says nothing about himself and does not date his prophecy as explicitly as Haggai and Zechariah do, which enable us to precisely mark the period they ministered, Malachi does give sufficient clues to identify the date and the historical setting of his ministry. And knowing the historical context is always crucial for interpreting any book, and especially in a book like Malachi, I think uh, knowing the context is quite crucial. As I said, uh, Malachi gives us some clues to identify the date. Now, what are the clues? In the book of Malachi, there is no mention of the problem of idolatry in the nation, and there is no warning of judgment because of idolatry, which indicate that it is not a pre-exilic book. If you look at any pre-exilic book, uh, prophecy book, you will always see that there is a warning about idolatry or the warning of judgment because of idolatry. So since uh, there is no warning, uh, we can be sure that it, this is not a pre-exilic book. But it is a post-exilic book. And this is God's last message to his earthly people Israel who had just returned from the Babylonian captivity. Now the second clue I want to look at is in the book of Malachi chapter 1 verse 8 we see a reference to your governor. And this word governor we see only in the post-exilic books and therefore it indicates that uh, this book was written after Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to the land in 538 BC. So along with Haggai and Zechariah, Malachi is one of the three post-exilic writing prophets. And also in this book of Malachi we see he refers to the worship in the temple. Uh, we see many references in chapter 1, in chapter 2, chapter 3. So we know that uh, when, Haggai, uh, when Malachi wrote this book, uh, the temple had been already rebuilt. So this is quite a time away from the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. One more clue I want to give is, if you see, compare this book along with the, the book of Nehemiah, you find that many of the issues addressed in the book of Nehemiah are also mentioned in the book of Malachi. So, looking at that, uh, it is tempting to map this book to the time of Nehemiah's reform. Uh, 
So Nehemiah and Malachi, I believe, are contemporaries. And in the book of Nehemiah, we hear about the issue of marrying heathen women, uh, violating tithing laws, divorce of legitimate wives, neglect temple, neglect of temple service, and so on. And all these issues are there in the book of Malachi. So I would suggest that Malachi wrote the book approximately uh, between 440 BC to 420 BC, uh, and which makes the book written approximately. Uh, 100 years after Haggai and Zechariah started the ministries. They started roughly around 520 BC. Now Malachi had a new message, a new burden from the Lord. After Malachi, the voice of prophecy ceased in Israel until John the Baptist appeared 400 years later to announce the arrival of the Messiah. Now as I said, uh, we have to understand the context, right? And uh, to understand the context of Malachi, we have to just look to who came before him. Before him, as I said, there were two other prophets, uh, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, you look at the book of Haggai and Zechariah, we can see that these two prophets uh, inspired the discouraged returnees from Babylon to be diligent in the service to the Lord and to complete the reconstruction of the fallen temple. When uh, Haggai and Zechariah preached, uh, the nation was still under foreign domination. Uh, Jerusalem lay in ruins and David's throne was empty. Yet the prophetic message of peace and prosperity and the promise of divine presence was enough to encourage the people for the task at hand. So we find that the temple was soon completed. Uh, but the experience of the greater glory uh, predicted by Haggai uh, did not happen. And also in the book of uh, Haggai we see that uh, the shaking of the nations was promised to Zerubbabel. And that too had, has not happened so far. So also in the book of Zechariah we see that uh, there is a prophecy about the crowds from all nations flocking to Jerusalem. But by this time Malachi wrote this book, uh, hardly few people had returned from uh, the Babylonian capital to Jerusalem. So, 100 years have gone, but the promises through Haggai and Zechariah have not been realized. Uh, instead of the position of preeminence and wealth they had expected, the nation remained subject to the same foreign power. Though at this moment it was not King Darius, but it was King Artaxerxes and also there was uh, no prospect for a king on David's throne. It looked like there was no immediate prospect. Uh, the people felt that they had done their part for God but God had not kept the part of the deal he had promised and therefore they grew increasingly impatient with the divine delights because God did not act according to their agenda or schedule and they began to doubt God's word and his ability to keep his promises. It is true that uh, the Jews during that time did not serve idols anymore, just as they had done before the exile, but their moral and spiritual condition was marked by indifference and unbelief. 
it is not unusual for god's people to struggle as they seek resolution to the tension between what they believe and what they experience the scripture records many examples but the people to whom malachi unburdened himself were guilty of more than the normal struggles of faith these people had developed serious misconceptions of god and of the nature of true spiritual worship they believed that god was someone who owed them things and religion was a means of manipulating god for a better life these people were not openly rebellious against god some of them may have even worked against uh, worked uh, under nehemiah while the walls of jerusalem were being rebuilt uh, they were offering sacrifices at the rebuilt temples they were outwardly following the law of moses and the prescribed rituals and to put it in a nutshell they are professing believers if you asked how they were doing spiritually they would have said ah fine but that was not god's evaluation god raised up malachi to put things in the right perspective god confronts the people through malachi no less than 47 out of the 55 verses were spoken directly by god the highest percentage in any of the prophetic books malachi had serious issues to address but he was the right man for the job malachi had a message that went straight to the point now with this we will move to the style and the structure of the book the book begins with an interesting word masa translated variously as an oracle a burden a prophecy in our english bibles the hebrew word masa implies the idea of raising something as one would raise an alarm or of carrying something the message of this book will be heavy and stern but they are not against israel but for israel and there are hopeful notes of blessings and joy too in this book if the people will heed the warnings the style of malachi is plain and straightforward uh, last week uh, you remember ian was uh, doing the bible study on the book of zechariah and uh, i hope believe that many of you would have found uh, the visions in the book of zechariah perplexing the message is not easy to understand or interpret but when we come to the book of malachi we are left in no doubt about the message of malachi but don't mistake me the message is not presented in a flat or unimaginative way since his audience was skeptical malachi uses the disputation method in which people are presented as questioning what the lord has said again note the word disputation malachi would anticipate what the people were thinking and he expressed that with both the questions and the answers through these questions and answers malachi exposed the shallowness of their objections and the mistaken notions on which they are based malachi's prophecy consists of six major sections each identified by the recurring word how in every question we see a state of mind that challenges god's statements 
and demands that God gives an account of himself in human terms. In each section, the general pattern is as follows. First, there is a brief assertion of a truth. And then that is followed by an objection, which is then again followed by uh, undeniable proof of the proposition. So as I said, the word how enables us to look at the book or divide the book into six major sections. So since we are looking at the overall structure, I believe uh, these uh, recurring word how will help us to look at this book briefly. Now where does the first how appear. It is in chapter 1 verse 2. Uh, please turn to verse 2 in chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God begins his message to the people with the words, I have loved you, but the people reply in crucial unbelief, how have you loved us? The implication is that if God really did love them, they would have prospered. But God reminds them that his love for his people, Jacob, is evident in his choosing them and protecting them by destroying their enemies. The second how is in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despised my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? God speaks to the priest, saying, you have despised my name. But the priests reply, how have we despised your name? The priests consider themselves doing God a favor by serving in the altar. But God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar, you have despised my name. And this leads to the next question, and that is in verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. After God says, you have polluted food on my altar, the priests replied, how have we polluted you? The priests considered themselves to be going beyond what was required, even though they were offering deformed animals. God tells them, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. 
God tells them that corrupt and, in, and contemptible worship is an insult to him. He will not tolerate false worship. He will get rid of it. If it is not repented and corrected, it will lead to God's turning to blessing others who will be faithful. And now we go to the fourth how, which is in verse 17 of verse 2. You have varied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we varied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi says, you have varied him with your words, to which the people reply, how have we varied him? Apparently the people considered themselves righteous and found fault with God for not judging the wicked. The flaw is that people were considering themselves to be among the righteous while they were actually acting wickedly. They were marrying heathen women and divorcing the legitimate wives without realizing the sinfulness they wanted justice from God. Malachi tells them that if God does not come in judgment immediately, it is because he is a God of grace as well as a God of judgment. He has not come in judgment because if he were to come, none could possibly stand before him. Before he comes, God promises to send his messenger who will prepare the way before him. God would come and would result in the exposure and judgment of those who had rebelled against him. Now the fifth how is in verse 7 of chapter 3. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? How shall we return? God admonishes the people, return to me and I will return to you. But the people reply, how shall we return? They mean, how can you say that we should return when we are already close to you and as obedient as we possibly be? What more can we do that we have not done already done? From what should we turn? And so the word of the Lord comes through the indictment that they have been robbing God. This charge stung them and they responded sharply, which is the next question in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, How have you robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God declares, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. To which the people retort, how have you robbed you? They mean, don't throw wild charges. If you think we are deficient in anything, declare what you believe we owe you and we will defend ourselves. 
And the Lord's answer is simple, the tithe and the offering. You have robbed me in the tithe and the offering. The tithe demonstrated the recognition of the fact that they owed their lives and their possessions to God and expressed the thanksgiving for His goodness. But don't misunderstand. Giving to God is not to enrich Him, for the earth is His along with its fullness. God does not need anything. The more believers find satisfaction in the person of God rather than in possessions, the more freely they will give themselves and all they have to the Lord. The people had not been paying the tithes and so the whole land was under a curse. And with that we will move to the conclusion. So what we have seen so far was the spirit of the age. A divine messenger, Malachi, came voicing the complaint of God and the people in astonishment and anger said, We don't see this at all. These people are not in open rebellion. They did not say, Let us stop our sacrifice and worship and do as we please. These people have been most particular and strict in outward observances. But their hearts have been far away from the truth. They have been boasting in the knowledge of truth and responding to the truth mechanically, but their hearts, their lives, their characters and their inward natures have been a perpetual contradiction to the will of God. To translate this into the language of the New Testament, having the form of godliness, they deny the power. And the book concludes with a warning from God and we read that in verses 5 to 6 of chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. It is significant that the final word of the Old Testament is destruction. But Malachi is not only focused on the past and lamenting the decline of godliness in Israel. He is also looking to God's coming. Malachi prophesies the coming of the messenger, that is John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for Jesus. Malachi said this for the first time in Malachi 3, 1-4 and repeats this prophecy at the end of his book. To us who look forward to the promise of the second coming of Jesus, it is a reminder that Jesus will come again. As Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. When Jesus says, Truly, truly, it means, listen to this. What I am about to say is very important. What are we to do with these great promises of God? We must believe them and take a stand upon them. And we come to the very last words, not of the Old Testament, but to the New Testament, and we read the great promise again. And we read that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. With great hope we echo. Amen and 
Amen.